All right. Well, you're going to notice by the grayed out version in your handout uh, that we're going to be picking up where we left off this last week. We went all the way through the third point of the third uh, point, <laughs> all the way through C of Roman numeral three on the visible church made local. Just by way of review, this last week we considered the nature of the universal church, that is all of God's elect that are brought by his grace to repent and believe in the gospel from the first moment of it being revealed in Genesis three until the full revelation of the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. All those whom he's brought to repent and believe in the gospel for all ages and all places are part of his invisible, universal church. It's what we might also refer to as his church Catholic. All right, lowercase c, Catholic. It's universal. Uh, that universal church is made visible in saints that are effectually called and live lives to the glory of Christ. Those saints gather in the local churches, and so uh, visible churches are localized then according to the power of Christ. And if you just kind of glance through the various paragraphs inside of, of the article, what you discover is there's a handful of phrases that are going to be repeated. The mind of Christ will come up time and again. And here, beginning in Beginning in uh, paragraph 7, or really five, 5, all the way to 13, you're going to see the theme of Christ's power being executed. Let me, uh, let me just show you something up here. This is kind of what we're seeing. In chapter 8, we see Christ as mediator has been appointed head over all things. And so God appoints Christ in his mediating office as head over all things, and he gives him who is head over all things to us, the church. We saw that in Ephesians chapter 1, even just this last Sunday. But then we're going to see that Christ's authority and power, as it's exercised on earth, uh, trickles its way down. And we're going to see in these latter paragraphs that it trickles its way down to congregations. And that's going to be specifically for the discipline and the worship of the church. From, con or from within congregations, you're going to see the authority of Christ manifested in its officers, namely in pastors and bishops. Pastors or bishops, same thing. And, uh, and that's for the teaching of the word and the execution of specific responsibilities. And then what you're going to find is this trickle down from God to Christ, Christ to congregations, congregations delegated to pastors for specific tasks, that it ends there, but that we're also this independency, this congregationalism doesn't exempt us from cooperating from other churches for the gospel's sake except those cooperative organizations that we might be a part of, those associations, have no ecclesiastic authority over the church. Every local church is independent in the, in the authority that it exercises. And so this is really kind of how the chapter is rolling on its way down. God has appointed Christ as head of the church. Christ as head of the church has deputized congregations with his authority. For, uh, for the purpose of discipline, that is church membership and discipline, and of worship. And within congregations, 
Pastors are appointed for the execution of certain duties, namely the ministry of word and prayer uh, and sacrament. Okay, so we have this kind of trickle-down effect. It's not theological Reaganomics or anything like that, but you see how the authority of Christ trickles down into congregations. That's what we're going to see uh, here in the rest of the chapter. So if you would, let's go ahead and open up. We saw all the way through uh, being ordered by Christ's power, uh, the power of Christ being both delegated and delineated, that is, Christ gives the churches his power, and uh, his word delineates or limits a church's power. In other words, the church's authority goes out no further than the authority that Christ grants it according to his word. Well, we're going to be picking up today in beginning in paragraph 8, all the way through the end of the chapter concerning church officers, concerning church officers. And in each one of these, 8 all the way through p paragraph 13, you're going to see the theme or you're going to be answer, it's going to be answering the question, how is it that the power of Christ as our head delegated to congregations fleshes itself out in the life of local congregations? That's really the aim. So let's go ahead and begin there, opening up paragraph 8. We're going to define officers, first of all. Read with me. A local church gathered and fully organized according to the mind of Christ consists of officers and members. The officers appointed by Christ are overseers or elders and deacons. They are to be chosen and set apart by the church, called and gathered in this way for the distinctive purpose of administering ordinances and for carrying out any other duty or power. Christ entrusts them with or calls them to. This pattern is to be continued until the end of the age. We see three things in this paragraph. First of all, we see a necessity in that first sentence, a fully organized church. That is a church that is matured and fully organized around the rule of Christ is not merely a congregation without officers. It includes officers and members. And so while you may have a true church without officers, you do not have a fully organized church without its officers, which is why, for instance, if we were to plant a church out of Covenant Baptist, Lord willing, we pray to that end, uh, then we would want to send both officers and members so that from day one, that church would be fully organized. And notice the phrase here, according to the mind of Christ. He's the one that orders it this way. So we don't get this from the latest leadership books or organizational gurus. We get it from the mind of Christ, from his word. This is how he's commanded us to organize. But secondly, we see the identity of these officers. The officers that are appointed by Christ, we see that they're overseers or elders. Those are one and the same in the New Testament. The New Testament uses three different words to describe them. There's overseers or elders, bishops, uh, and pastors. And it's three different ways of talking about the same office, each one emphasizing a different aspect of the office, whether a ruling function, whether a teaching function, or whether a uh, shepherding function. So we see the identity of these officers are elders and deacons. But then finally, notice their duties. They serve the distinct purpose of administering ordinances 
and for carrying out any other power or duty Christ entrusts them with or calls them to, namely that ministry for pastors and elders that is related to the ministry of word and prayer, and for deacons to the stewardship of the physical resources of the church for the physical good of the church. And they go hand in hand. Deacons serve tables, so to speak, in an Acts chapter 6 sense, so that uh, elders can serve the word, give themselves to word and prayer. Just look at this with me, if you would, Acts chapter 6. Now, this isn't really a deacon passage. It's almost, it's kind of like proto-deacons because we're dealing with apostles and we're dealing with servants, but it does set a kind of pattern for what deacons would look like as churches are planted and fully formed in the apostolic era, Acts chapter 6. And if I talk funny from time to time today, just know it's because uh, I had some dental work done yesterday and not everything is copacetic inside my mouth. And so, uh, just hang with me if I bite my tongue once in a while or whatever it may be. Now, in these days, verse 1, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, that is the twelve apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. In other words, our job is to, get ourselves, is to give ourselves to the preaching of the gospel for the establishment of churches. That's what Christ commissioned us to do. And we're spending all of our time trying to settle disputes in the church and to establish unity to, by making sure that the physical resources are evenly distributed. In so doing, we're neglecting the ministry of the word and prayer. So we need to appoint, he says, beginning of verse 4, or verse 3 rather, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So you have some serving tables and you have others serving the word. Verse 5, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, uh, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and a number of other men that you can see there. And then look at what happened. According to the mind of Christ in ordering the early church in this way, setting this pattern. Verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So pastors and deacons work together in a complementary way to see the word of God sown so that uh, it would grow and spread. Those are the officers. The necessity of the officers, the identity of the officers, and their duty. But how are these officers going to be called? We're going to see in that next paragraph, paragraph 9, that uh, there's two kinds of callings. There's an internal calling and there's an external calling. They are divinely called and they are congregationally recognized. And so often as I talk to young men who want to know, how do I know if I'm called into ministry? How do I know if, uh, if I'm called to be an elder or a pastor? I think I want to be. And so here's the answer. If you believe, I tell them, that the Lord Jesus Christ has called you internally, that he's called you to a life of godliness, and he's gifted you according to the Spirit to teach, that is, you've been able to open up the Bible and teach in a way that's produced fruit in those around you, others around you recognize godliness in you, then it may be that you're called to be a pastor. But 
you won't know that until Christ speaks through his church. Externally, has the church recognized that in you? And have they called you and appointed you according to the godliness of your character and the competency of your word ministry to fulfill this office? Well, that's the same pattern that we're going to see here in paragraph 9. We see, first of all, divinely called that Christ has appointed the way to call someone prepared and gifted by the Holy Spirit to the office of overseer or elder in the church. And he must be chosen by the collective vote of the church itself or common suffrage, as it says in the older versions. Notice two things. First of all, appointed by Christ and gifted by the Spirit. That they are... Christ, as head of the church, is the one who appoints his officers according to his will, according to his mind, as those who will give a unique accounting of their ministry to him at the end of the age, Hebrews 13, 17. And the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, gifts those men, both in godly character through the fruit of the Spirit, as well as making them apt to teach. The Spirit accompanies the Word in their ministry and bears fruit. But we see a transitional statement there that he must be chosen by the collective vote of the church itself, and that means that they're to be congregationally recognized. He must then be solemnly set apart by fasting and prayer. The body of the elders of church must lay hands on him, as we see throughout the New Testament, if there, is, if there are any already in place. A deacon must be chosen by some kind of vote and set apart by prayer and the laying on of hands as well. We see two things. We see, first of all, affirmation. That is, the church in common suffrage recognizes, yes, in fact, Christ has appointed this man because he's bearing fruit in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is accompanying the Word in his ministry to bear fruit in our midst. He's a godly man that is a shepherd in his heart, and the Spirit blesses his ministries, he opens his mouth and disciples others, as he teaches others, as he communicates the word of God in various contexts. That may include preaching, but not necessarily so. And then that man is set aside publicly in such a way that the whole congregation recognizes through the laying on of hands and through prayer that this is one whom Christ is appointed to fulfill these duties in this office for this congregation. We have both affirmation and we have ordination. The recognition that this is in fact a man called by Christ, gifted by the Spirit, and set aside, set apart, sanctified for a unique service in the life of the church. But what are the duties of a pastor? Really, here's the question, what are the duties of a pastor to a congregation? And what are the duties of a congregation to their pastors? That's really what the next uh, paragraph is concerned with. We're going to see a handful of things. We're going to see mutual duties, and we're going to see biblical requirements. Notice, first of all, pastors to churches. Here's the responsibilities that pastors have to their congregations. The work of pastors is to give constant attention to the service of Christ and his churches in the ministry of the word and of prayer. They are to watch over the souls of church members as those who must give an account to Christ. Notice two things that pastors are uniquely 
responsible for. That is the ministry of word and prayer. You say, now, wait a minute. I thought part of the ministry of pastors is to oversee the church. Well, that's true. Now, when it comes to organizational aspects of the church, ministries to begin or ministries to put down, uh, various other moving parts organizationally in the way that we think about it, you realize that almost everything that we do as a church is prudential, not necessarily commanded by Scripture. Small groups aren't commanded by Scripture. Uh, only the gathering of the church on, on the first day of the week under the word and around the table is what's commanded by Scripture. Everything else is just prudential. Now, pastors may have a role in organizing and overseeing any number of those things, but when it's talking about oversight, really its oversight submits itself to the ministry of the word. How is it that elders rule the church? They rule the church with a staff that Christ has given them as his shepherds, his under-shepherds, and that staff is the word of God. They guide and they lead by the preaching and the teaching of God's word that the church would be rightly ordered, just as we saw in 1 Corinthians 11 on Sunday, and that all of the saints would submit themselves to the rule of Christ as proclaimed by their pastors. And so when we see oversight or rule, it's not really talking organizationally in the way that we might think about it in a modern sense, though prudentially that may be the case, as we try to apply the word in prudentially wise ways to organize our life together. It specifically means to, uh, to speak the word of Christ to the people of Christ, that they would be conformed to Christ, and that our church and our life together would, would conform to his mind as well. So, we, so pastors rule by Christ's word, which is to say that, that the rule of a pastor is not inherent. It's not absolute. It's an extension of Christ himself. And therefore, we have no right to add to his word or take away from his word, right? Those things that are right and left, not right and wrong, are things that we have to admit. This is right or left. So I'll give you an example. Many of you, you remember when you came in through the membership of our church, we said, listen, there, there are all kinds of things that we do together as a church, and they fit into really three different categories. There's a must, a should, and a could. The must are those things that we understand to be commanded of us in Scripture. We gather on the first day of the week, the whole church together, under the word and around the table that Christ has commanded us to do so. But then there's things that you should do. Those are things that are not necessarily commanded in Scripture, but for the way that we've organized our church, for the sake of trying to obey other commands that Christ has given, we've chosen to emphasize these things. And so a should, for instance, might be a fellowship group on a Sunday morning on the first Sunday. Now, if you're not at a fellowship group this Sunday on the first Sunday of the month, we're not going to knock down your door. We're not going to call you out or put you under church discipline. You're not in sin. But we're just saying you probably should do it because of all the ways that we've tried to organize our church so that our whole church on the Lord's Day comes together to do one another good. This is just how your elders have organized it. So insofar in, in as you're able... Follow your elders into these spaces to do spiritual good to the church on the Lord's Day. But then there's a third category, and it's really the biggest category, and that's the could. If you think it would be helpful, great. We'd love to see you. If you decide not to be at this, that, or the other ministry or serving in this, that, or the other way, well, that's okay, too. We're not going to give a second thought to whether you're there or not. We'd love for you to be there because we love you. So like midweek equipping times or various small groups or one another groups, you realize all of those things are vehicles, prudential vehicles that we think 
help us to obey the scripture, but those things themselves are not obedience or disobedience to the scripture. And we just want to make really clear that we make the musts of scripture the musts of scripture. That's why when members come into our church, we don't say you must get into a small group. We say you could get into a small group, you should include yourself in a fellowship group when we gather, but you must be here on the first day of the week when our church gathers. And that leaves lots of liberty, which is really just to say as we aim to rule the church according to God's word, we cannot bind where God's word doesn't bind. We have to give freedom where Christ's word gives freedom, even if in those prudential structures we're aiming to just help people obey scripture on their own. Does that make sense? I hope it does. The rule of, of pastors and elders is not inherent to the person. It is an extension of the word of God. And you can't add or take away, add to it or take away from it. So pastors are responsible to their churches in the ministry of word and prayer. But secondly, churches are responsible to their pastors. Notice this, the churches to whom they minister must not only give them all due respect, but also must share with them from all their good things according to their ability. They must do this so that their pastors may have a comfortable living without having to be entangled in secular matters, and so they can show hospitality to others. This is really just taken from 1 Timothy chapter 5. You can turn in your Bibles there or flip your thumb to that space if you're using your phone. 1 Timothy 5, it says here in verse 17, let the elders who rule well, according to the word, be considered worthy of double honor. Now, what does the ruling well look like in this instance? Specifically, it's talking about those who labor in preaching and teaching. Verse 18, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. The laborer deserves his wages. Allow the man who preaches and teaches the gospel to make his living by the gospel, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And so what, the, what they're saying here is essentially uh, that, that congregations owe their pastors two things. Insofar as they're qualified godly men, they owe them honor. Hebrews 13, 17, obey them. Earlier in the same chapter, respect them. Right? 1 Peter 5, same thing, follow them. Um, to honor them and follow them, respect them and pray for them, to honor them both in public and in private. But it's not just to give them honor, it's also to give them honorarium, that is to, that is to support them in their ministry. I think that's a better way to put it than say compensate or give a salary to, is to support us in our ministry, especially those who give themselves fully to the preaching and teaching of the word. That's what we see here. And so what is it that, that Covenant Baptist Church pays me to do? Well, listen, I, I send emails and I try to organize fellowship groups and, and so on and so forth. But if we were to wipe all of that stuff out in our church and I gave myself entirely to praying, teaching, and preaching, then I would be at the most fundamental level faithful to the things that this church pays me to do. Covenant Baptist Church doesn't pay its pastors, its, its paid pastors, to give themselves to primarily the work of uh, being event planners or uh, life coaches or whatever it may be. As we see here, the expectation for you 
in supporting my ministry is that my ministry would primarily look like a whole lot of teaching and preaching the to the congregation. That's my job. Such that there's all different kinds of things that I could do in the church. And if I fail to do this, then I'm not sure that, according to the Bible, uh, that our congregation is supporting me for the proper ministry. Does that make sense? So it means that anybody that we bring on the staff to pay as a, as a pastor, that their primary responsibility is a ministry to teach and preach. And while there might be prudential duties that, that different pastors may have administratively or otherwise, each one is still primarily paid for the ministry of the word to devote themselves to it. Does that make sense? And so that's what we'd understand. Where do we get that? Well, we just saw it. We see it in nature's law and Christ's command. This is required by the law of nature and by the explicit command of our Lord Jesus, who is ordained that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. We just considered that last week, so we won't look at it again. But now moving on, are the, are the pastors and elders of a church, are they the only ones that should be doing the teaching and the preaching? Well, paragraph 11 says, no, not exactly. Even though overseers or pastors of churches must be engaged in preaching the word as a function of their office, yet the work of preaching the word is not totally restricted to them. Others who are also gifted and prepared by the Holy Spirit for it and approved and called by the church may and should preach. We see a couple of things. Number one, these gifted brothers are identified that it is those who are gifted and prepared by the Holy Spirit for it, and secondly, they are affirmed that they are called by the church to do that. In other words, just because a man in our church may want to teach or preach does not mean that that brother gets to teach or preach. Now, we want to provide opportunities for men to bear fruit uh, and to grow if that's the way that the Lord has gifted them. But there is a sense where the confession compels us as a church to think maybe even more uh, industriously toward how exactly we equip and recognize those men in our church, though they may not be elders, to be qualified doctrinally and in their character and in their gifting to open up the word to the whole church and say, thus saith the Lord. It's going to look like doctrinal agreement that they subscribe to the confession. It's going to look like godliness and character. Their life in no way, uh, their life in no way um, disqualifies them. They're not necessarily shepherds, let's say, but they are gifted teachers. You realize if you're an elder, all elders are teachers, but not all teachers are elders. All elders are shepherds, but not all teachers are shepherds. So we might recognize that there are some men that maybe are instinctive shepherds in our church, but are gifted teachers, and perhaps the Lord has called them to edify and build up our church in that way. Well, that's what it's talking about here, is gifted brethren in particular. Now, this is, I think, really interesting because what it does is the confession gives us a prioritization over how the teaching of the church, the primary teaching of the church, should be organized. 
And a lot of evangelical churches, it looks something like this. We want to hire a pastor that is going to, in an Ephesians 4 sense, equip the saints for the work of the ministry, which a lot of times looks like the pastor may be preaching most of the time on Sunday, but equipping everybody else to do all of the teaching everywhere else in the church, whether in small groups and Sunday schools and, and so on and so forth. And so often it looks something like this. that the pastor maybe occupies the center point of the church in his teaching, but then that works its way up to where these gifted brethren, whoop, so to speak, are doing the majority of the teaching, or just generally speaking. I, I think what the confession does is it kind of inverses it. It's saying... That first and foremost, the ones who have the primary responsibility for teaching the word are elders. And it's specifically going to be, well, I'll take that back, it's specifically going to be those who are paid specifically to give themselves to the teaching and the preaching of the church. So that would be like, for instance, I'm in the pay of the church. My primary responsibility is to preach and teach. I should be doing the majority of the preaching and the teaching in the church because that is what the church pays me to do. Doesn't mean I do all of it, but it should mean that the lion's share belongs to those who devote themselves full time. Oftentimes I think churches are malnourished biblically because the ones who are commanded to give themselves to the teaching and the preaching of the word, do the least amount of it in the church, percentage-wise. Whereas many of our churches would be way more healthy if those who were gifted and called by Christ and were set aside and, and, and supported financially in their ministry to give themselves to it, that if they give themselves to the teaching of the church, it builds up the church. It matures the church because that's what Christ has given them for. However, you may also have elders who are apt to teach, I'm going to put an A there, because that's what we see in 1 Timothy 5. Maybe not those who are supported or paid to teach, but those who are apt to teach. They have the ability to teach. They may not preach, but they might teach in a number of different ways. Preachers are, unique to, are, are gifted, I think, in, in unique kind of ways than, than teachers are. So all elders teach, but not all elders necessarily preach, depending on their, the nature of their giftedness but they've been apt to teach, whether in personal discipleship or in small group type settings or in other environments, that they're apt to teach. And then finally, you have gifted brethren. And this is kind of where the confession sees it working down. It begins with those in a 1 Timothy 5 sense, give themselves primarily to the teaching of the word. And then the next in line to teach. Those opportunities go to those elders who are apt to teach. And then the next opportunities go to those gifted brothers who are set aside by the church to teach, doctrinally like-minded. But you see, in all of these, what we have are confessionally grounded, uh, biblically faithful, godly teachers building up the church. And so the confession is organized something like that. Okay, let's keep on moving. We can talk about this in the Q&A time if you want, or we can jump around. We've now seen how the power of Christ is uh, deputized in local congregations, how local congregations delegate some of that authority for specific tasks related to the ministry of word, prayer, and sacrament to elders. And 
Now it changes its focus to the power of, of Christ in discipline, specifically church membership and church discipline in paragraphs 12 and 13. Notice this, we're going to see, first of all, the execution of discipline, and then we're going to see upholding discipline. It says all believers are obligated to join themselves to local churches when and where they have the opportunity. In other words, there's no such thing as churchless Christianity in the Bible. Likewise, all who are admitted to the privileges of a church are also subject to the discipline and the government of it according to the rule of Christ. Church membership is no less than submission to a local congregation. It's to submit yourself to its discipline. Now, when we talk about discipline, there's two ways that the Bible talks about church discipline. On the one hand, it speaks about formative discipline, forming, sanctifying. That might go be via teaching, exhorting, rebuking, correcting. All of that would be formative discipline. But there's also corrective discipline, the kind of corrective discipline that may even lead to excommunication or the removal of someone from the church for unrepentant sin. And so to submit yourself to a church is to submit yourself to the church's authority in discipline, both in including you into all of the privileges and the benefits that come from being a member of Christ's church, but also overseeing you in such a way that you would, along with every other member of that church, aim to please God in your life and walk in a way or in a manner pleasing to Him. It's to submit yourself to all of the privileges, rights, and discipline thereof. All according, again, see that there, to the rule of Christ. We don't get to make it up by fiat. We don't get to excommunicate people just because we don't like them. We don't determine whether or not someone comes into our church because their personality is a good fit for the other members. Are they believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have they been baptized in obedience to His command, baptized in His name? If so, and they're able to exercise agreement with our church, we bring them in, whether we understand them to be a good fit, personality-wise or other. We'll get to add to God's Word in that way, right? Same thing with excommunication. Just because someone ruffles our feathers or just because they're a difficult personality doesn't mean that we get to remove them from the church, that we have to do it according to the rule of Christ. We don't just execute discipline. That's really, when you think about church membership, really what you, be, you should be thinking about it is synonymous with discipline. Discipline should be synonymous with discipleship. That's the normal way we should think about discipline is discipleship. And sometimes it even looks like the kind of discipline that's corrective in painful ways. No such thing as a churchless Christianity. And all Christians who submit to church submit to the discipline therein. Upholding discipline, church members who have been offended and who have performed their duty concerning the person by which they're offended should not disrupt any church action or absent themselves from the assemblies of the church, the administration of any ordinance because of the offense of their fellow members. Instead, they should look to Christ and the further action of the church. In other words, three things are, are focused on here. A member's care, commitment, and confidence. The care that an offended member has to take is going to the brother to win him. Tell him of his fault, Matthew 18. And if he will not listen, bring other witnesses with you. This is 
dealing with matters of personal offense. We keep it private, we go one-on-one, -on -one. brother or sister, what you did really wounded me and hurt me. Here's where, according to God's word, I think it may be sin. I think you need to consider that. And if they won't listen and they're defensive or, or, or they continue to treat you in a similar way, well, then you might bring in two or three other witnesses, those who are able to maybe make judgments a little bit better than you because they're not as emotionally tied to the situation as you are, but they're godly saints in the congregation. You're still keeping things discreet and private, guarding everybody's reputations in the matter, and going and talking about it. It's saying, listen, members should care about this process because this is the rule of Christ. This is what he's what he's laid out for us. But what happens when somebody doesn't respond the way you think they should? What happens when all of a sudden their sanctification moves a little bit more slowly than you think it should? Do you get to throw a fit? Do you get to, to stand up in the middle of a members meeting and, and disrupt the orderliness of the church? Do you get to just leave and neglect all of the various promises that, that you've made to to those members and submitting to that church just because you're upset? And the answer is here, no, those aren't legitimate reasons for leaving a church. Why? Because Christ, according to his wisdom, often works at a different pace than we do in the sanctification and the correction of his saints. One pastor once said, one of, the pastor, one of my old pastors, he'd say, you know, God invented time, but men make watches, right? Christ moves according to his own time and his own wisdom to bring about his own purposes and according to his word. And so often we start tapping our watches expecting Christ to work in the time frame that we want him to work in. And that's what it says here. Don't disrupt any church action if you're offended. If it's not going the way that you want, don't absent yourself from the assemblies of the church. Instead, here's what you should do. Look to Christ the older version says, wait for Christ in the further action of the church. Mark, do you have an older confession on you or are you using one of the new ones? You have an older one? Will you, uh, let me see that real quick because I don't like the way the modernized version puts this. Uh, I think the older version is much more helpful here is what it says. But wait upon Christ in the further proceeding of the church. The language there specifically is that wait for Christ to show up. Wait for Christ to speak. And where does Christ speak? He speaks in the gathering of his church, Matthew 18, when his church speaks. What it's saying is that if you're one who's upset because things between you and another member aren't going the way that you would like for them to go and you jet because you think, well, that person doesn't take Christian, Christianity seriously, and this church doesn't take Christianity, I'm going to go, you know, whatever it may be. It's saying, no, you need to wait. Wait for Christ to speak in the church. He will be with them when two or three or more are gathered to make these kinds of declarations. Wait on the church. Wait for Christ to execute his discipline in the church. Look to him. Be patient and wait. And so it's Meant. Isn't this interesting? Even hundreds of years ago, Christians are still prone to throwing fits and leaving the church because things don't go their way 
It says you don't get to break fellowship just because you're frustrated. Wait for Christ. Lean into Christ, right? Lean into the, your fellow saints. Entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. That's what you need to do. Okay, so it's just telling essentially all those believers who obligate themselves to local churches need to take their obligation to local churches seriously. And that means if you do that, it's not always going to be uh, puppy dogs, lollipops, rainbows, and roses. You're going to have to endure with a congregation of people that still have indwelling sin just like you. And it takes time for that church to conform itself to the mind of Christ. Be patient. Well, moving on from discipline, here's what we see. Finally, inner church communion. How is it that, that churches should relate to one another, or should they? If Christ has given every congregation in and of itself authority for these things, as we've seen in the chapter, what necessity is there then for relationships with other churches? Don't we have everything that we need in our own church? Well, it's going to lay down two things in these last two paragraphs. In paragraph 14, it's necessity, and in paragraph 15, it's practicality. Here's what we see. It's necessity. We're going to see a universal obligation, and we're going to see a cooperative mission. Every church and all its members are obligated to pray continually for the good, good and prosperity of all churches of Christ in every place. You are to pray for other churches. You realize this is why we do this in our pastoral prayer. We want to pray for other churches in our city. We don't want to presume that the kingdom of Christ ends at the, at, in these walls at, at between, you know, 3 and 4.30 to 5, depending on how long... Paul sings. We want to pray for other churches. We want to pray for the preaching of the gospel. We want to pray for their health and their fruitfulness, right? We are not territorial. The confession guards us against it. We are for other churches, even those with whom we might disagree on secondary doctrines. We are for other churches for the gospel's sake. That's what it's saying. We want to pray for them. Not only that, but there are some churches with whom we're going to, with whom we would unite, not just to pray, but to plant. They must also, at every opportunity, within the limits of their stations and calling, exercise their gifts and graces to benefit every single church. And that's what we see next in that cooperative mission. So when churches are raised up by the providence of God, insofar as they enjoy opportunity and favorable circumstances for it, they should have fellowship among themselves for their peace, growth, and love, and mutual edification. The idea is before other churches for the gospel's sake, for those with whom you are like-minded doctrinally and ecclesiologically cooperate together so that every church might be built up in peacefulness and love, might be strengthened according to God. God's word and that more churches would be established. That's the goal. It's associational life. But it's also very practical. So it's necessary because working together accomplishes more for the gospel's sake than trying to do everything ourselves. But it's also practical, and that's what we see in the last paragraph. We're going to see three C's concerns, counsel, and, uh, and caveats. Here's the concern specifically, those cases of difficulties or differences, either doctrinal 
or administrative. Now, when it's talking administrative, it's not saying, uh, hey, you guys need to update your Excel spreadsheets, you know, because this is better. It, it's administrative, it's talking about the administration of the ordinances, right? In the organization of the churches, right? It's talking about ecclesiology, polity. The cases of difficulties or differences, whether doctrinal or administrative, may arise. Touching on the peace, union, and edification of all churches in general or an individual church. In other words, the way that this church or multiple churches are conducting themselves is potentially injurious to other churches as well. If not directly, then maybe publicly because they're confusing people about what we understand the Bible to teach concerning these things. Other cases may occur when a member or members of a church are injured in or by disciplinary action that is not in keeping with truth and order. And so there may be just complicated cases of discipline in the life of the church and associational life invites other churches to give counsel to our church that we might make the godliest decision possible according to his word. And that's what we see secondly is counsel that in such cases it is according to the mind of Christ for many churches having fellowship together to meet through their messengers to consider and give their advice concerning the issue and dispute and to report their advice to all the churches concerned. In other words, you have these, church, these handful of churches that are all in deliberate association with one another. One or more churches are seeking counsel on a particular doctrinal or administrative matter, that is the organization of the church, the church polity. And according to the mind of Christ, think Acts 15, Jerusalem Council, different saints, different places coming together, uniting different churches in different places around the truth of the gospel and ordering their life together that they meet through messengers. So here's the prudence of it. Every church send qualified messengers to come and meet on behalf of that church and they'll all get together. They'll study the word together on this particular issue and then whatever they decide is biblical, they'll, they'll, they'll communicate like a circular letter to all the churches. Hey, we think this may be most biblical when it comes to this particular application of doctrine or of church polity. But here's the caveat. Nevertheless, these assembled messengers are not entrusted with any church authority, strictly speaking. Neither do they have any jurisdiction over churches themselves to exercise any discipline, either over any churches or individuals, or to impose their decision on churches or officers. In other words, there's no body outside of the congregation that can exercise authority over an individual congregation. And so what the confession is doing is an encouragement of associational relationships for the good of the gospel while maintaining independency of each local church, that Christ has entrusted congregations gathered with a unique authority for its own affairs. I got a call just a couple of months ago, really it's about a month and a half ago, uh, by some dear brothers of a church on the other side of the Metroplex. And uh, the pastor had come to the elders and basically had said he had a change in, in doctrinal position. He was a, he was a paedo-baptist now, and he felt like he needed to, to, ch to move the church toward adopting two confessions, one for the paedo-baptists and one for the credo-baptist. Well, first of all, not only is that impossible, because 
the two contradict one another in the organization of the church and who the, who the church's members are, who's perhaps even permitted to the Lord's Supper, depending on how you're defining some of the terms. And so the elders knew, well, no, we have a confession. This is our confession. This is what our, our congregation believes. We can't go that route. But he says, well, I believe that the Bible teaches that as a senior pastor, I have the most say. And so this brother ends up, they find these elders find out, even though they, they end up disagreeing with, and a majority of them vote against the proposal by the senior pastor, that the senior pastor had already been talking amongst the members, that he had already had, because he had the primary preaching ministry of the church, all of the influence in the church. And so rather than lose the pastor that they love, they would give up their confessional fidelity to keep him. And now a handful of those pastors have resigned and they've had to leave the church because he's leaving it, leading the church in an opposite direction of what it had for years and years and years, confessed to be true in the scriptures. And as they called me and I talked to them, they said they were a Reformed Baptist church and they're part of a, an association like what it's called here. And I was like, you need to call the network, the association that you're a part of, not because they can make the decision for your congregation, but that these wise and godly brothers might be able to speak in such a way that would influence the congregation in a more biblical way to, to make statements, to inform these other churches, for these elders to stand up in front of the congregation and say, hey, listen, these churches with whom we associate with, these that we've considered to be like-minded, these with whom we've cooperated in mission and planting and other things, this is what they're collectively saying about our circumstances. And so, church, you need to be really slow about moving contrary to what we have confessed the Bible to teach for years and years and years because of this brother. And they didn't end up doing that. And the church is splitting as we speak. It's a sad situation of essentially a pastoral coup by the senior pastor. It was a doctrinal coup to fashion the church, not, not to submit himself to the church and the church's confession, but to submit the church and its confession to himself. This is why churches have confessions it's why churches have associations to guard themselves according to the rule of Christ, what they understand the church or what they understand the Bible to teach against pastoral capriciousness of being able to make it up as he goes. In reality, I believe that pastor should have submitted not only to the congregation, but the expressed convictions of that congregation through their confession, and he should have resigned. That's how we counsel him. You should resign. The most loving thing for you to do this church is resign, and then go see in the Lord's time whether or not you might pastor a church that's, that's more like-minded, but you're going to split the church if you keep doing this. No, I won't. We're going to have two confessions, and that's what expresses unity. Well, now, the dissenting elders are the ones that hate unity in front of them. You, you get it? It was just all this stuff going on. And the benefit in that kind of situation is, who do we go to? Who do we talk to? Who counsels us? 
Who might be able to help us instruct the congregation in such a way that we would more closely cling to the mind of Christ? Not because they have authority, but because here is a cloud of witnesses affirming what the scriptures teach such that we might be able to make as a congregation the most sound judgments possible. That's the goal of associationalism. And by eschewing off that kind of counsel, the church split. It was a sad situation. And so here we are, the, what, what the second London is, is ultimately enjoining us to is the wisdom of going, you don't, you don't have to do it all on your own. There are other wise and godly churches that can be wise counsel to you as you aim to make judgments on matters of doctrinal difference and of church polity. Does that make sense? So there's a safety in numbers, so to speak, and that's what it enjoins.